0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is fellowshipping and befriending strangers. In the first half, Neil LaVon Cox shares his address, and they did fellowship one with another. Then in the second half, William G. Eggington speaks on Therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners.
1: As a preface to my remarks today, I wish to declare my faith and testimony. I know that there is a God in heaven. He is our Heavenly Father, and we are His children. He loves all of His children. He has revealed Himself to the world in these, the latter days, and prophets walk on the earth today as they did anciently. God loved us, so He sent His Son, Christ Jesus, the Atoning One, to show us by the path He trod the one and only way to God. I rejoice with you today in this good news and in this truth. During the past several years my wife Carol and I have been fortunate to live with you here in Happy Valley. I consider this a great blessing for us and our family. But I have discovered that even in Happy Valley there are some among us who are not happy and who yearn for recognition and friendship. I find this odd because we live in an environment of relative tranquility and abundance. During an earlier era of peace and plenty described in the Book of Mormon, it was noted that quote, and they did fellowship one with another and did rejoice one with another and did have great joy. End of quotation. As we fellowship or befriend others, we too can rejoice with them and have great joy. I have seen this outcome in many of your lives, but not all. There are lonely people among us, and today I share your concern for such souls. Perhaps you are among the lonely. Surely there are some of those within your reach who sense the emptiness of feeling alone in the world. Moroni had such feelings when he wrote, I am alone, and I have not friends. But his world was devoid of saints, and in Provo we are surrounded. In 1867, Mark Twain visited New York City and reported the following, New York is a splendid desert, a domed and steepled solitude, where a stranger is lonely in the midst of a million of his race. End of quotation. How sad that lonely souls walk the same streets as thousands of other lonely persons, their potential friends. This is contrary to the way God would have us live. He desires that we be no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens. Today there are still lonely people in New York City and throughout the world. Listen to a sampling of their voices. I always feel lonely, and I have no friends. I am not important to anyone. I'm forgettable. I'm boring. I am so lonely. Please, just talk to me. Or consider the words of a woman who recently visited a beautiful park, excited to make new friends that day, she noted, I passed at least 20 adults, some with children, some with dogs on leashes. The dogs appeared to be excited, tails wagging, stopping to take a sniff at anyone who acknowledged them no one smiles no one can say hi and if you try to say hi to them they turn their heads maybe some owners could learn a lesson or two from their furry friends the park visitor concluded if we don't extend our hand out to others there won't be anyone to miss us when we're gone end of quotation let me briefly add a personal disclaimer Today's advice is not intended to encourage anyone to disregard common sense when dealing with others. Certainly, there are rare situations which necessitate avoiding people. Scripture warns Enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it. Turn from it, and pass away. End of quotation. However, to personally extend this biblical warning unnecessarily to multitudes of well-meaning but lonely people is to forfeit opportunities to bless lives, yours included. Not long ago, a sophomore at BYU found her way to my office. Her demeanor and body language bespoke the sadness that she felt, and she lamented that she had failed to become involved or make many friends during her first year in Provo. I mostly listened as she conducted a personal therapy session with herself and as she concluded saying, I guess I just need to get outside of myself and do something for others. She had made a very wise and absolutely correct diagnosis of the malady from which she was suffering, and I knew I could help. So I immediately walked the young woman to the Student Leadership Office, which houses the programs of the Brigham Young University Student Service Association, or BYUSA, as it is better known. There she was introduced to a genuinely happy and gregarious student volunteer who took her on a tour of the office, explaining the various ways in which students may become involved and serve others. I left knowing that my young friend was in good hands. She was doing what she herself had prescribed. She was getting outside herself and finding ways to serve others. A few days after our visit to the Student Leadership Office, I returned to communicate thanks to the dedicated student volunteer who had fellowshiped my friend. The volunteer said with excitement in her voice, Your friend is here in the office this afternoon. Where? I questioned. Over there, pointing to a spot perhaps 50 feet from where we stood. I quickly made my way to see my once lonely and unhappy friend, but opted to stay out of sight while within range of her voice. My friend had gotten involved, and she was giving a tour of the office to two freshmen. I heard her say, I didn't get involved, but kept to myself— during my freshman year, and I regret it. You need to get outside yourself and find ways to serve others. We can help you," she said. Oh, my, this was music to my ears. And when I made my appearance, I observed the smile which had replaced the previously distressed look on the face of my friend. Similar excited and happy looks were observed in the faces of the two visitors. I had just witnessed modern fulfillment, of the important Book of Mormon principle, and they did fellowship one with another, and did rejoice one with another, and did have great joy. Professor Richard J. Light, in his groundbreaking research regarding college students, has observed, quote, students report that their most powerful memories come from incidents and experiences outside of classes, usually during interactions with other students. End of quote. I would add that campus clubs, YSERV office, student leadership programs at BYU are wonderful ways to find service opportunities and thus have positive interactions with other students. If you feel such a need, these programs beckon you. Please find a way to contribute and get outside yourself. And if you are concerned that involvement may impact adversely your academics, Dr. Light concluded that, on average, students who do volunteer work have slightly higher grades than those who don't. President Thomas S. Monson visited the BYU campus in 2007. That day he observed that, quote, to find real happiness, we must seek for it in a focus outside ourselves. No one has learned the meaning of living until he has surrendered his ego to the service of his fellow man. Service to others is akin to duty, the fulfillment of which brings true joy. End of quotation. I testify that this is true, and I rejoice in the many students who have discovered this emancipating principle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. President Monson that same day also observed, quote, The New Testament teaches that it is impossible to take a right attitude toward Christ without taking an unselfish attitude toward men. End of quotation. President Monson's encouragement and his personal example are echoes of a principle taught in the Book of Mormon Think of your brethren like unto yourselves and be familiar with all. Sister Cox and I were blessed to be able to serve the people of the Illinois-Chicago Mission. It was a challenging but beautifully emerging experience for our family. One of the things about which we felt strongly was the importance of quickly introducing new missionaries to the people of the Windy City. When missionaries first arrived, we did not attempt to insulate them from others. We wanted them to immediately meet people who would profit from knowing about the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our mission. As new missionaries arrived at the O'Hare Airport, it was our practice to board the L-train with them for a 45-minute ride into the city. Armed with copies of the Book of Mormon and referral cards, our objective was to provide every missionary a positive experience in sharing the gospel with someone along the way. A few seasoned missionaries accompanied us. To provide good role models and mentors for the sincere but yet inexperienced elders and sisters. I loved those days, but I'm not sure that all the new missionaries did. Having been raised by loving mothers and fathers who had taught them to never speak to strangers, it must have seemed odd when we directed them to speak with every stranger they could as they rode the train into the city. Many responded and greeted people while others initially found it difficult to communicate with strangers. I recall one wonderful sister who, upon her arrival, seemed frozen with fear as she contemplated how she might make a positive contact during her first day as a missionary in the field. Unable to muster the significant courage needed to initiate a conversation with others, she observed a group of young people boarding the train. They were touring the city, sharing their Christian beliefs through music. Thanks to other missionaries, there was ample conversation about our faith on the train car, and the members of the Christian youth group were exposed to the Book of Mormon by enthusiastic elders and sisters. There was so much discussion, in fact, that we actually missed our intended stop, riding the train until it reached the line's terminus. As this kind group of Christian youth and their pastor exited the train, The young Sister Missionary was gathering her things, not yet having had a chance to speak about her faith. One of the female members of the departing Christian youth group lagged behind her peers and returned to the train car to ask the determined but somewhat frustrated Sister Missionary, Could I get a copy of that book? The Sister Missionary wasted no time in delivering a copy of the Book of Mormon before briefly bearing her humble testimony of its veracity. I don't think that that sister's feet touched the ground for hours after this positive encounter with a stranger. Her prayers and ours were answered that day. Thinking about this young sister missionary brings back memories of my first few days as a young elder. With no previous language training and serving in Tokyo, Japan, I participated many mornings in a flyer distribution activity at the Nishikoiwa train station. As men hustled to board their train to work early each morning, we politely approached them and offered a small flyer detailing the location of our Church and providing a brief spiritual message. As the men passed by rapidly, I learned to say, Dozo yonde kudasai, or Please read this. After a few days of repeating this simple directive, I asked my companion, Elder Kent McKell, if there might be another phrase I could use. He told me to say, dozo o yomi-ni nate kudasai, which means the same thing, please read this, but in higher or honorific language. I proceeded to use the newly discovered expression, but unfortunately I failed to pronounce one of the syllables correctly. Uh, That morning I repeated perhaps 200 times to busy Japanese businessmen, dozo o yomi-ni nate kudasai, or, please marry me. (laughs) Yes, we we do risk failure or embarrassment when we approach others, but it is the right thing to do. (laughs) I'm grateful today for a Church member who got outside himself and talked to a stranger. The stranger was my great-great-grandfather, Orville Sutherland Cox. He was relocating from Ohio to Missouri and was not well acquainted with the restored gospel of Jesus Christ when he met Brother Sylvester Hewlett on a dusty road just outside far west Missouri in 1838. Brother Hewlett patiently listened as Mr. Cox harshly criticized the Church based solely on rumors to which he had been exposed. But rather than bristling or walking away, Brother Hewlett invited my ancestor to walk with him into the city and to witness firsthand the industry and the goodness of the Mormons. My ancestor was impressed and quickly recognized the false nature of his previous impressions. Learning that Mr. Cox was a newcomer and had no place to stay, Brother Hewlett kindly opened his home to the stranger for an extended period. For me, this adds much personal meaning to the Savior's declaration. I was a stranger, and you took me in." That one encounter altered the entire life of my great-great-grandfather and that of his descendants. I am a grateful recipient of Brother Sylvester Hewlett's kind fellowshipping that day so long ago. After some time, Orville Cox was baptized, and the two men eventually migrated to Utah and remained faithful Latter-day Saints and best friends to the end of their lives. It's only fitting that Orville Sutherland Cox and Sylvester Hewlett, who met as strangers on a road in Missouri, are buried next to each other in the Pioneer Cemetery at Fairview, Utah. What if Brother Hewlett would have avoided my ancestor that day? It is quite possible that we would not be having this conversation 175 years later. All of us look forward to General Conference this weekend, and we see genuine interest in others powerfully exemplified in the leaders of our Church. While I am not well acquainted with the Brethren and regard myself as a very ordinary but grateful Church member, I have had occasion to personally witness the determined efforts of Church leaders to get outside themselves and recognize others. Years ago, as a missionary, I looked forward to the visit of the then young apostle, Elder Gordon B. Hinckley. He was deeply revered by the Japanese Saints and had been highly involved in the growth of the Church in post-World War II Japan. He loved all people, but he had a special affinity for those in this once war-torn nation. Elder Hinckley arrived one evening very, very tired and suffering from jet lag. The following day he faced a rigorous schedule, which included much travel and several teaching opportunities. As he rose very early the next morning, he had every reason to seek privacy as he prepared for the day, but that is not what he chose. Elder Hinckley asked the first missionaries he encountered that morning—Elders Evans and Cox—if they would accompany him into the streets of Tokyo, where he desired to communicate with the good people of that city. Although he spoke a surprising amount of Japanese, he felt that the two missionaries might be of some help in assisting him in communicating with those he would meet that morning. We spent the next hour contacting people on the streets of Tokyo, recognizing them and their individual worth, and informing them of our faith. President Hinckley loved all people, and he sought to serve them throughout his long life. He did not avoid others. On another occasion, I visited the Salt Lake Clinic, seeking remedy for a a knee injury. Uh, When my name was called, I was ushered down a busy hallway by a helpful nurse, and while moving toward our destination, we passed an exam room with an open door. Seated in the exam room, dressed in a hospital gown, was Spencer W. Kimball, who was also receiving medical attention that day. I was shocked to see the prophet, but inspired when he quickly recognized my presence and waved a kind greeting to a man he had never met but one he seemed to value. Such is the manner in which true disciples of Christ live. You perhaps have noticed, as I have, how prone to warmth and welcoming our university president is. When I visited the campus in the fall of 2007 to be interviewed for a position I was later blessed to assume, I was walking alone between the Abraham Smoot Building and the Wilkinson Student Center when President Samuelson, accompanied by a few of his colleagues, greeted me while walking in the opposite direction. He was one of very few people who seemed to recognize me that day. Why did he notice me? He did not know me, and I was not affiliated with the university at the time. He had nothing to gain from his brief but genial exchange with me. He simply cares about others in a manner not unlike the Savior, who issues a sincere greeting and invitation to all mankind. My hands are stretched out still. So why is it so difficult for us to talk to others we don't yet know? Perhaps it's because not everyone returns the same enthusiastic greeting we try to extend. The actions of some bespeak their apparent belief that eye contact has been outlawed in Provo. Others hide behind an electronic shield, a hindrance to potential contact that would enhance their lives and bring blessings to self and others. Too many on our campus spend time inspecting the sidewalks rather than looking up to find the potential friends who surround them, some of us leave behind the strong focus on the welfare of others we practiced as missionaries. This campus should be the warmest and most inviting on earth. You have likely felt both the exhilaration of being recognized as well as the heartache that accompanies being ignored. Let us choose to recognize others on the campus of Brigham Young University. Let us follow the counsel given by outstanding student leaders who, sensing the need I speak of today, produced a brief video in 2008 which is timeless and worth our viewing this morning.
0: There are so many students here. We come from such diverse backgrounds. It can be easy to keep to ourselves. I believe that we can change this part of our campus culture. Everything is new on the first day of school. The teachers, the books, the course materials, the new classmates. I try to start the semester off right, by making a new friend and introducing myself.
1: It can be easy to feel lost on this campus. This campus is so big. It's so easy to feel lost and alone.
0: But when someone comes up to you and is kind and introduces themselves and gets to know you, don't you feel so included?
2: It's very easy for all of us just to stay in our comfort zone. It doesn't hurt to make new friends.
0: When I see others sitting alone, I'm reminded of when others included me, and I think, why not get to know them? It's a campus community. It involves each one of us. I know if, if I were in need, I would really appreciate the help of others. The service is simple, but we just have to do it.
2: School's hard sometimes, things get tough, and it's nice every once in a while when somebody actually notices the hard work that you do. It's just as simple as as giving somebody an encouraging word.
0: Sometimes you just need to take the headphones out and just reach out to people. We can start by serving each other.
2: We can change the culture.
0: We can redefine service.
1: Stephen R. Covey left us a ringing reminder of the principle I am attempting to define today when he wrote, Ironically, you will find that as you care less about what others think of you, you will care more about what others think of themselves and their worlds, including their relationship with you. End of quotation. The world can be a frightening place. Not everyone will heed you. Don't hide yourself away from folks. Put others first. They need you. As others you approach each day, recall the social dearth that swept the earth and hampered souls, but souls have such great worth. Please notice those around you and take time to look and see the precious ones right in your path. Your friends, they soon may be those starving for the human touch that saints should always grant, you'll make the world a better place. So please don't say, I can't. Surrender all your ego and put focus on the others who pass you daily on your way, your heavenly kin, your brothers. Remember those who took the time to recognize and greet you? Then pass it on and do your best. Give folks a chance to meet you. The world can be a happier place More friends you are making, too. Extend yourself and bless a life. It all begins with you. During his earthly ministry, the Savior noted, I know my sheep. Shouldn't we then know each other? This cannot fully occur until we take time for others and recognize both their existence and their worth. Of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, it is written, quote, And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. End of quotation. The Saviour looked for ways to be with others. Let us not avoid such opportunity. As the hymn advises, let's oft then in kindly toned voices our mutual friendship renew, till heart meets with heart and rejoices in friendship that ever is true. The Prophet Joseph Smith taught that friendship is one of the grand, fundamental principles of Mormonism. Let us better open this campus to fellowshipping so that it may someday also be said of us, and they did fellowship one with another, and they did rejoice one with another, and did have great joy. This is my sincere and humble prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is fellowshipping and befriending strangers. We've just heard from Neil LaVon Cox. After the break, we'll return with William G. Eggington for Therefore Ye Are No More Strangers and Foreigners. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is fellowshipping and befriending strangers. Next is William G. Eggington, a professor and chair of the BYU Department of Linguistics and English Language at the time of this address, titled Therefore Ye Are No More Strangers and Foreigners.
2: As was noted in the introduction, I come from Australia, so uh, that's why I think you talk funny. (laughs) As was also mentioned, I am a linguist. Linguistics is the scientific study of language. In 1979, Pam and I were living a pretty comfortable life in Brisbane, Australia. We had a nice house close to Pam's parents and three wonderful children aged six, five, and three. I had a good job, but I also had a dream. I wanted to know more about how language works, especially for people who are acquiring a second language. At that time, one of the best graduate programs in linguistics in the world was at the University of Southern California in downtown Los Angeles. So we left this good life and went off to Los Angeles. The second day in L.A., we bundled the kids into a borrowed car and went down to the USC campus to keep an appointment with a linguistics professor. I was excited to be finally going to the temple of my academic dreams. We arrived on campus, got a campus map, but there was no linguistics department listed on the map. We found a traffic station and asked a security guard where the linguistics department was. "The what?" he asked. "The linguistics department." He picked up a phone. "Hey Joe, do you know where that ling ling the what? Linguistics department. The linguistics department is?" After a long time, we eventually found this tiny rickety old building that was the temple of my academic dreams. I'll never forget the bemused smile on Pam's face as we began this adventure. I'm sure she was thinking, what has he done to us? Thank you, Pam, for your patience, support, love, and encouragement for all the sacrifices you have made and continue to make on our behalf. Most days I leave my BYU office in the early evening and wander around campus trying to remember where I parked the car that morning. Don't laugh. As you get older, you'll have many experiences like that. I look at the beautiful mountains, this incredible campus, and the miracle that each of you represent. I can't help but think of G.K. Chesterton's poem and thoughts about evening. He says, Here dies another day, during which I have had eyes, ears, hands, and the great world around me, and with tomorrow begins another. Why am I allowed to? This is what I'd like to talk to you about today—some aspects of this great world around us and how we interact with it with our eyes, ears, and hands. In so doing, perhaps I can provide one answer to why we were allowed so many days beyond the one. What is our relationship to the great world around us? We are told to be in the world but not of the world. We are instructed to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature which, of course, we take to mean preaching the gospel to all of God's children. In so doing, we follow the example of Christ, who also went into the world. Based upon how Christ went into the world, let me suggest that going into the world means becoming righteous participants, interacting closely and lovingly with all of God's children. In so doing, we fulfill the mission assigned to us because we are children of the prophets And we are of the house of Israel, and we are of the covenant which the Father made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. This is our responsibility to all the kindreds of the earth. Note that this responsibility extends not just to people who are like us, or even to people who want to become like us, but to all the kindreds of the earth. Now let me talk about some aspects of this great world around us and all the kindreds of the earth that live here from a linguistics perspective. We are living in times that some describe in terms of two ages—the information age and the age of proximity. Much has been said about the information age, where an incredible growth in technology has allowed each of us to have access to vast troves of information. A huge portion of the world's current scientific, technological, or cultural information is stored and retrieved in the English language. In many respects, Anglo-American cultural values carried by the English language dominate global behavior, either in terms of people adopting these values or people reacting to them. As native or near-native English speakers, we at this university have inherited a linguistically and culturally privileged position amongst the world's population. In fact, it may be no historical accident that English, at least up to this point in time, is the working language of this dispensation as well as history's first world language. The information age has a companion. Never in human history have so many people moved around so much, so often, for so many purposes. The global population is on the move, whether it be through international immigration, internal in country migration, or through short term travel for business or educational purposes. This is exciting. But with these movements comes the new challenges of a new age, one that I have labeled the age of proximity, adapting a term used in slightly different contexts. Let me explain what I mean by that term. Over many millennia, human beings have developed modes of behavior that have grown out of social comfort zones where we interact with people just like us. Beginning with interactions in settings such as those found within families, clans, tribes, villages, towns, cities, regions, and nations, we like to spend time with people who share our linguistic and cultural ways. We are most comfortable when we are with our people. Things go more smoothly. But in this age of proximity, we spend more and more time proximate to people from other families, other tribes and villages, other cities, regions, and nations. These people speak other dialects of our languages or totally different dialects, They share different cultural norms that seem strange to us. In essence, we are more and more, closer and closer, interacting with people who speak in strange tongues and who do strange things. We are living in a world of strangers. This is the age of proximity. This situation often threatens to take us out of our same language, same culture comfort zones. The sociocultural and sociolinguistic consequence of this age of proximity are not as apparent here at BYU as they are in a place like Los Angeles, for example. But they are here, and it is likely that you will be dealing with them both here and elsewhere throughout your lifetime. We can choose to respond to challenges brought about the age of proximity in a number of ways. We can withdraw into our sameness—our family, friends, regional and national identities—setting up barriers that protect us. From interacting in meaningful ways with those who are different. Some of the people of the world have chosen to do this by withdrawing geographically behind walls of national or religious exclusion. Others choose to do it in more subtle ways, relying on technology so that even though they are physically surrounded by those from different backgrounds, they can always be virtually at home, encased in their comforting iPod music their electronic Facebook and Twitter friends, their same minded political blogs and digital social networks. In many ways, even though they are surrounded by different people, they are also immersed in their virtual tribe. They just have to interact with non tribal members in minimal and superficial ways. It's comforting and it's natural human behavior, default behavior for the natural man. But as suggested earlier, it's not what Heavenly Father wants us to do. Over the past few months in Sunday school, many of us have followed Paul's apostolic mission as he went fearlessly into strange places, introducing strange people to Christ's teachings, while at the same time coping with those at home in Jerusalem who wanted to keep Christianity within the tribe. He often pled with those at home to welcome these strangers into their families, their homes, and into Christ's Church. In one memorable exchange, he argued that there should be no more strangers and foreigners, but all should be fellow citizens with the saints in the household of God. Similar to a standard modern Church mission, Paul had to go elsewhere to interact with strangers and bring them to Christ. But here is what is interesting about our current times. In the age of proximity, the strangers and foreigners are coming to us. They are all around us. I was one of them. We are strange to them. Our challenge, then, is to overcome our natural man reluctance to interact with those who come from different languages, dialects, and cultural backgrounds, and to treat them as no more strangers, but actual or potential fellow citizens with the saints in the household of God. This challenge is not easy. Even when we can overcome language barriers, there are a host of other more subtle difficulties. Let me give you a brief linguistic lecture that focuses on these difficulties. Language consists of sounds that make words, that make sentences, that make meaning. So far, so good. But things get complicated. Consider the following exchange between two people in a home setting. That's the phone. I'm washing the dog. Okay. Those three utterances are grammatically correct But as a meaningful set of sequenced expressions, devoid of context, they don't make sense. But you know what they mean. By saying, that's the phone, Pam's intention is to say what? The phone is ringing. I'm not going to answer it. You answer it. By saying, I'm washing the dog, Bill intends to say, I'm unable to answer the phone. You answer it. PAM says, okay, which means, I'll answer it. Often things we say not only have a grammatical sense, but also an intentional sense. We say one thing, we intend to mean another thing. This phenomenon is what linguists call pragmatics. You are able to make sense of PAMs and Bills' exchange because you have developed pragmatic competence or the ability to express and comprehend hidden or intended or unstated meaning that is embedded in understandings of particular situational or cultural contexts. Your pragmatic competence comes from lifelong experiences dealing with similar cultural and situational contexts. Even when people share the same or similar linguistic and cultural backgrounds, pragmatic problems arise. Consider the following—by the way, many of the anecdotes I will relate here are exemplars of actual published research. Citations to this research are available in the printed version of this paper. Let's say an imaginary couple, Jack and Jill, are driving home to Provo from Salt Lake City. Jill asks, Jack, are you thirsty? Jack responds, no. Things go silent in the car. They arrive in Provo, which time Jill turns to Jack and says, You know, you need to work on being a little less self-centered and departs rather frigidly. Jack stares into the void, wondering what just happened. (laughs) So what happened? Well, By asking if Jack was thirsty, Jill was intending to signal that she was thirsty, and perhaps they could pull into their favorite fast-food place at Lehigh. Jack didn't comprehend Jill's indirect intended meaning. This is an example of what linguists call pragmatic failure. As a noted researcher in the field states, most of our misunderstandings of other people are not due to any inability to hear them or to parse their sentences or to understand their words. A far more important source of difficulty in communication is that we often fail to understand a speaker's intention. So if examples of pragmatic failure abound when people from shared backgrounds communicate, you can imagine how frequent they occur when people from different cultural or linguistic backgrounds Interact, which of course happens often in this age of proximity. Here's a personal example of pragmatic failure at the cross cultural level. Prior to attending graduate school at the University of Southern California, I taught English as a second language to immigrants and refugees in Australia in an adult basic education context. During breaks, teachers at the school would gather in the teacher's lounge and often commiserate about this or that teaching problem, class, or student. I might say, I have a problem with teaching a particular class. A colleague might respond by saying something like, yeah, there are some real problem students in that class. I had them last semester. What a bunch of losers. We never talk like that at BYU as faculty, by the way. (laughs) End of conversation. We moved to Los Angeles for graduate school, and for a time I taught in a similar context, except at this school's teacher's lounge when I related that I had a problem My American colleagues gave me unwanted advice on how to teach. I often listened to them stone-faced, suppressing righteous indignation, thinking that they obviously felt that I am an inexperienced teacher in need of assistance. How dare they! As I got to know my colleagues more and as they became my friends, I realized that they interpreted my whining about students as a plea for help, and they selflessly took the time to provide that help. Sometime later, an American teacher started the school who had just completed a teacher exchange to an Australian school. I heard that she thoroughly enjoyed her Australian experience, except that she felt that she didn't get much help from her Australian colleagues. I imagined that she thought she was asking for help by expressing a concern, but all she got back was commiseration rather than assistance. Even though Australians and Americans share approximately the same language, we do have slightly different cultural expectations that can often lead to pragmatic failure, to be more precise, cross-cultural pragmatic failure. These misunderstandings resulted in me thinking for a time that Americans were patronizing know-it-alls and resulted in her thinking that Australian teachers were unhelpful, especially to foreigners. I have to confess that I even went through a period when I was in those early days living in Los Angeles where I started thinking about know-it-all patronizing Americans in terms of stereotypes, reinforced by a process known as confirmation bias, where we only recognize and cognitively register features that confirm our preconceived notions, totally disregarding any non-confirmatory evidence. Sadly, confirmation bias in cross-cultural contexts happens all too frequently. The process can easily become a silent killer of goodwill, charity, and compassion— especially in situations where non-native speakers are involved. Jenny Thomas expresses the problem in this way. Grammatical errors may be irritating and impede communication, but at least, as a rule, they are apparent so that hearers are aware that an error has occurred. Pragmatic failure, on the other hand, is rarely recognized as such by non-linguists If a non-native speaker appears to speak fluently, a native speaker is likely to attribute his or her apparent impoliteness or unfriendliness not to any linguistic deficiency, but to boorishness or ill-will. Here is a brief selection of some of the many cross-cultural pragmatic failures attested in the research literature. Once again, citations are available in the printed version of the paper. The labels of Culture A and Culture B in one example refer to different cultures in a different example. Culture A creates and maintains friendships through mutual insults. Culture B maintains friendships through expressions of positive worth. They think Culture A's are rude, aggressive. Culture A's think B's have superficial friendships constantly in need of maintenance. When Culture A folks come to class late, They enter the classroom quietly and crouch over slightly as if they are wearing a Harry Potter cloaking device (laughs) so as not to disturb the class. Culture B—a high, honor-based culture—requires its late students to apologize openly and sit in a prominent position in the classroom. Culture A thinks Culture B students are rude and disruptive. Culture B thinks Culture A is cowardly, untrustworthy, and sneaky. See if you can predict the results of pragmatic failure in the following scenarios. Culture A's require that most polite conversations end with a series of closure exchanges, such as, "Okay, see ya, bye. Culture B folks simply walk away when the purpose of the conversation is completed. Culture A expects regular eye contact during face-to-face conversations. Culture B folks show respect to the conversant by looking down and away. Culture A is uncomfortable with silence in conversations—like you're feeling now. (laughs) Culture B, on the other hand, have a long silence-tolerance period and don't feel uncomfortable with silence. When Culture A speakers like someone, they compliment them on something they have, such as a watch or an item of clothing. When Culture B speakers receive a compliment for an item of clothing or watch, for example, they are under an obligation to offer that item to the person that is issuing the compliment. Each of the various cross-cultural pragmatic features mentioned in this list is built upon one or more significant foundational cultural values. A much-studied cultural value revolves around personal autonomy, as in who has the power to tell someone else what to do. In Hofstede's Power Distance Index, people from national cultures at the bottom of the Low Power Index Are reluctant to tell others what to do and devise intricate linguistic complexities in order to avoid expressions of raw power. Notice how the bottom five low power distance nations are all English speaking. English speakers are masters at mitigating or masking power. For example, if you want someone to close the door, you are more likely to use what's called a WH imperative or a WIMP imperative, such as, Would you mind closing the door? Than the direct polite imperative, please close the door. Another example. Even if you know for sure that the party begins at 7 o'clock, when someone asks you when the party begins, you are more likely to soften your certainty by saying something like, "Uh, I think it starts at 7. Another example. If you have to give advice, you are more likely to use softeners and hedges such as, You know, uh, maybe it would be good if you did this. People from high-power distance cultures do not have such a complex repertoire of power avoidance linguistic devices, and so, from the perspective of native English speakers, they often come across as being rude, assertive, and disrespectful. On the other hand, our attempts at avoidance of power are often interpreted as indicators of uncertainty, weakness, or insincerity. That's the end of the linguistic lecture—you can wake up now. So what has this lecture got to do with our goal of trying to figure out how strangers and foreigners can become fellow citizens with the Saints in the household of God? As I mentioned some time back, our language—English, our Anglo-American cultural and pragmatic ways—play a dominant role in the globalized world. In essence, it can be argued that the world is coming to us. Our language, our culture, and our pragmatic behaviours can easily be seen as the default, as the normal. We can almost subconsciously develop a sense of ethnic superiority, a stance that says all these other ways of doing things are strange, odd, cute, interesting, but we really know what the right way is, don't we? And as soon as all these other folks become like us, the better things will be. Let me suggest that this attitude is not going to help all the kindreds of the world be blessed through us. It smacks of ethnic superiority, a trait that President Hinckley warned us about in his first General Conference talk after being called by the Lord as prophet. He says, There is so great need for civility and mutual respect amongst those of differing beliefs and philosophies, which I take to mean different cultures. We must not be partisans of any direct doctrine of ethnic superiority. We live in a world of diversity. We can and must be respectful toward those whose teachings and cultures, perhaps, we may not be familiar with. If we are to fulfill the charge given to us by our prophets in this age of proximity, we need to develop a sophisticated ability to analyze language use and cultural values in a conscious manner so as to solve pragmatic misunderstandings. Doing so can lead to positive outcomes. Let me provide two brief personal experiences as examples. My sister and I joined the Church when I was 14 years old. We became members because two young elders—one from Utah the other from Arizona—gained the trust and confidence of my parents, especially of my father. One of these missionaries, Kent Thurgood, is sitting right here in front of me. (laughs) My father never became a member. But he often told me how impressed he was with those two American boys, especially with their kindness, their humility, and their respect for his cultural values. Because of their ability to gain my father's trust, he allowed them to teach the family, which in turn allowed my sister and I to gain testimonies of the truthfulness of the gospel and be baptized. This would never have happened if these two young men had not developed a love for and an understanding of the strangers and foreigners they were teaching. Many years later, I had the pleasure of having lunch in Sydney, Australia, with Elder and Sister Hafen. Elder Bruce Hafen was BYU's provost during the time when Rex Lee was president of BYU. He was later called as a Seventy and for a time served as the area president for the South Pacific region, based in Sydney. Elder Hafen had no historical connection to Australia, but during that lunch it was apparent that he and Sister Hafen had become authorities on Australian history, culture, language, and pragmatics. He had accomplished this through hard work, prayer, humility, and compassion. In so doing, he had developed a deep love and respect for the people he was called to serve. His accomplishments in Australia during this time of service became legendary. These two examples show what happens when we learn to love and respect strangers and foreigners. I began this talk by quoting G.K. Chesterton's poem, Let Me Repeat, Here Dies Another Day, during which I have had eyes, ears, hands, and the great world around me. And with tomorrow begins another. Why am I allowed to? I have argued that one reason we are allowed to, and many more than to, is so that we can be instrumental in bringing strangers and foreigners to the household of God by developing an awareness and appreciation of the cultures and ways of thinking and speaking of these strangers and foreigners who, in this age of proximity, are part of the great world around us. There is another very sacred scripture concerning strangers that stands as a challenge to us all. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared to you from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? When saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer, and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. I was one of these strangers. Perhaps you were too or maybe one of your ancestors. My prayer is that the matters we have discussed here today can help us be more successful in bringing strangers and foreigners to the Lord's house. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was fellowshipping and befriending strangers with thoughts from Neil LaVon Cox and William G. Eggington. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.